I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. Uh, Today we are in the Sermon of the Mount. We are in Matthew 5, um, uh, 13 through 20. And um, yeah, Alan, why don't you uh, tell us about this portion of the Sermon of the Mount? Thanks, Christine. Um, Yeah, our gospel lesson for this week serves as a kind of almost a second introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We talked last week about how the Beatitudes served to introduce a lot of the themes that we're going to find in the sermon. This is almost like a second introduction. It shifts the attention from the blessings of the kingdom in the Beatitudes to focus more on the disciples, and that shift is going to continue in the in the sermon. But then it also moves to address an issue that very likely was important not only in Matthew's community, but also in the early Christian community as a whole, and that's the question, what role does the law play in the life of Jesus? Jesus' disciples. So it seems that this is pretty intentionally put together, this whole body of stuff. So it is indeed. It is indeed. And and um, when you, you know, um, I've talked before about, you know, studying the Gospels and some of the methods that we use. I think one of the gifts that we have with the Synoptic Gospels, having parallel material, is you really do get to see how the different Gospel writers use different uh, some of the same mm-hmm. materials in different ways and so we, you know when we when we talk about the quote unquote sermon on the mount in Matthew 5 7 we have the quote unquote sermon on the plain in Luke 6 17 mm-hmm. through 49 so i mean you got three chapters in Matthew versus less than mm-hmm. a chapter in Luke i mean mm-hmm. it's obviously there's there's something different here right 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 and you know i think we tend to assume that the sermon on the plain is more original because it's shorter but that's still doesn't mean that either one, either the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6 is a report of a speech actually given by Jesus. You know, I think we, I think we can assume that, that mm. um, uh, the, those who are passing on the tradition of Jesus' sayings have done some work beforehand in shaping um, the material that was used by both Luke and Matthew. But it's clear, I think, in Matthew that he has had a hand in thoroughly framing the Sermon on the Mount as a fitting definition of the gospel of the kingdom and what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. And I think we see this when we compare the specific content of Matthew 5-7 through 7 with Luke's Sermon on the Plain. And um, Gene Boring has, in his commentary on Matthew in the New, International, uh, the New Interpreter's Bible, um, in volume eight on page 173 he's got a chart called the structure of the sermon on the mount where he he he's trying to show the triadic structure but he also does a really helpful thing for us because off on the right hand side of that chart he has the parallels in in luke to the to the various sections in matthew's gospel and lays it out very clearly Mm -hmm. you know you can see that matthew is is collecting sayings from jesus not only from the sermon on the plain but also from other places and so you know um, much of the content of luke's sermon on the plain is found in some form in matthew's sermon on the mount although matthew has rearranged the order of luke's material in places which i find interesting because you think if somebody's going to copy they're going to just yeah. copy it in order. But well, Matthew's, Matthew's not just copying. He's, he's 
interpreting this material. I think this is yeah. one thing we need to understand about gospel origins is, the, is that the gospel writers were not just copyists. They were interpreters right. themselves. Well, and, I mean, I think for many people, this kind of, let's say, rocks the boat of a concept that Jesus sat down and, or stood up and gave this sermon and, and or two sermons, right, that had similar right. material I and collapsed them. I don't think there's any basis for making right. that assumption. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I agree. What we have to understand is that already before the Gospels were written, those who were passing along Jesus' sayings had already gathered these mm-hmm. materials into a collection of sayings. And so, you know, um, this interpretive process started, I mean— I would say right after the resurrection. You know, the early church right, began not only passing on Jesus' sayings in oral form and in written form, but they also be- already began interpreting. And part of that interpretation process is how you group stuff, to right. how you group the material together. Yeah. And, and so yeah. you see an interpretation framework in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's gospel. You see a different interpretive framework in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel. So taking you further on this as I'm thinking about it, is there significance to putting Jesus on a mount versus a plane? Is that a thing? Oh, you know, um, some will say that in Matthew, the mountain is the mountain of Revelation, kind of like Mount Sinai. Oh, okay. Um, And so, and even perhaps with a conscious uh, parallel to Mount Sinai. Um, I don't see that as being all that significant myself. Okay. If it is, it's it's a it's a it's it's a it's a peripheral emphasis. Okay. It's not the main emphasis at all. So it's probably not it, the best choice to do this I, whole I sermon, those so. mountaintops. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, in Luke's Luke's sermon on the plain is the focus is on mercy, and in mm. in Matthew Matthew has taken some of that same material and reshaped it a little bit to make the focus more on righteousness, mm-hmm. but mercy is still right in there. Right, okay. okay. <laughs> so, so basically, um, you know, although much of the same content of Luke's Sermon on the Plain is found in some form in, Ma- in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, there's also a great deal of teaching material from other parts of Luke's Gospel, which suggests perhaps from Q that Matthew is incorporated into these three chapters, as well as some elements that either belong to Matthew's unique tradition or perhaps that Matthew composed himself. Uh, because again, you know, the, the gospel writers aren't just, you know, copying and pasting. They're interpreting, and they're providing an interpretive framework to help us understand Jesus mm-hmm. from their perspective. And I, frankly, I think that's one of the great values of each, of having more than one gospel, is that we have more than one perspective on, you know, wh- how, sh- how should we interpret these sayings of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's, it's, it's actually wonderful, but... It is, you have to get over this. You have to get out of the framework of the Gospels of presenting a biography well, of Jesus. I think part of it with this, too, is how many of us have the children's Bible with Jesus mm. standing there mm-hmm. doing this lesson I mean, on the we, mount? We, we all mm-hmm. see that image, right? We I all mean, see it's a that. meme these days, right? right? Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. Uh, so, excuse me. So, um, let's. Then let's just move us then from this beatitude into this kind of next. Yeah. Now I will say this: for both Luke and Matthew, these sermons—the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain—present the content of Jesus' teaching about what it means to follow Him, discipleship, from each of their unique mm-hmm. perspectives. 
and um, what it means to seek the kingdom of God. And the difference is that while mercy is the theme of Luke's Sermon on the Plain, along with the great reversal, Mm -hmm. Matthew has shifted that to righteousness. Mm -hmm. But as we saw last week, righteousness refers both to a life that's consistent with the great reversal of the kingdom of God, as summarized in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed Mm -hmm. are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's all kinds of reversal going on there. But it's also righteousness refers to a life that is consistent with God's, I should say, I would say merciful action of setting right the world mm-hmm. by accomplishing that reversal okay. in the kingdom. So, you know, they although... They go together. They, they don't conflict with right. each other, but they do have... Well, and although, although Matthew doesn't lay a lot of stress on the concept of mercy, it's clearly there it's in the there. background. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So the opening section then of our lesson this week continues the transition from the Beatitudes to the imperatives of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus opens by saying, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot in verse 13. While we tend to treat the idea of salt of the earth here as self-evident, I would say the image of salt in the New Testament is anything but self-evident. In fact, it mm. is really quite enigmatic when you look at the way salt is used in the New Testament It is, and in the Gospels. Some of the sayings of Jesus related to salt are just head scratchers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people try to try to relate this to the way salt was used in the ancient world. Salt had a number of uses in the ancient world, and and I would say that none of them really correlate directly to what Jesus is saying here. I think Mm. the point of this saying is simply that just as salt cannot be made salty again after it's lost its property of saltiness, Mm -hmm. and so therefore it's of no further use, so also if those who follow Jesus do not seek first the kingdom and put into practice the greater righteousness that Jesus will outline in the sermon, then they're not fulfilling their purpose. I think that's the point yeah, of the saying, I, I you're agree. the salt of the earth. I think you have a purpose, and it's seeking the kingdom and, and, and fulfilling right. this greater righteousness. I think, you know, how many of us have heard sermons that go off in some long mm. discourse about salt, and I do think they're missing the point. And I think there's a temptation here because it's kind of interesting to, to think about all these things that salt does. But I think you're right. It's Well, it's one of those things that, you know, you could say that'll preach. But my question is, is it true? Is it true? Well, <laughs> and so there's, this, there's a book out there. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's um, Mark Kulansky's Salt, A World History. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, it's, and so if you've read this thing, I mean, it's really about the role of salt and it's kind of if you will as a history through salt because salt is necessary for life of course therefore you can construct a whole history of the world based on salt and salt trade and salt use it's one of those lenses for history and there's lots of different ones so anyway i mean i can see why people get off on this tangent because this type of thing's real and i do think there's something probably to said that that Jesus used something everyone was familiar with in, in terms of this point. And I think that's really as far as it goes. I yeah. agree with you. But this is why people get off on a tangent, yeah. because they start seeing this salt as being as being so, you know, the, the history of the world based well, on Well, frankly, I mean, some older commentators would indulge in these kinds of things. And so you find it in a commentary and you think, well, okay, this is yeah. this must be this must be legit. Well, it you know I did find it in the Reformation commentaries yeah. even right yeah. you know and this whole yeah. this whole like 
um, discourse on salt and how salt's used, and there's more to. And there's a lot of people were were going into these directions of well, salt cut bites, and therefore there's this bite and sting, all oh, this stuff. No, and yeah. and actually, some of the reformers picked up on. That oh, that's concept. why that's why I advocate people doing their own study. You know, just just pick up a concordance and and or just search your Bible program for salt in the New Testament and see how it's yeah, used. That's you know, right. and actually read the context and. Figure out, you know, okay, well, wow, that's strange, you know, yeah, and see yeah. that see that salt can be used in a variety of ways, and and then that helps you to recognize, yeah, maybe this sort of a dogmatic thing of that salt is a preservative, or salt is to heal, or salt is to give flavor, or salt is to bite. Maybe that's not so on target after all. Right? Maybe that's yeah. It helps you helps you be able to evaluate for yourself um, what the commentators are saying. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, the next saying has also been treated as equally self-evident. You're the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's Matthew 5, 4, 14 mm-hmm. through 16. I mean, I think the obvious point here is that the purpose of light is to shine, yep. not to be hidden. So Jesus instructs his disciples to act in such a way that others may see your good works. And this seems, but but the problem is this seems to be contradictory to what Jesus will say later in the sermon. Later, mm, Jesus yep. will warn them about practicing your, their piety to be seen. Right. Right. By others. <laughs> right. I would say, however, that in this context, we're talking about the disciples adopting a lifestyle that's consistent with right. the kingdom of God in order to bring glory to God. Right. Whereas in the latter setting, Jesus is addressing the hypocrisy right. of practicing piety purely, purely for show. Yeah, and I think that's the point. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that's the point. But you can see But why it is interesting can, mm-hmm. that you have this language of, to you know, so that others may see your good works. And then mm-hmm. uh, in the next chapter, I mean, right. you're going to have this warning against being seen. Right, right. Well, and again, I think... <laughs> Doing it, it to be well, seen. Well, and it, I think it all results of where what what's the cause of those good works? Glorifying yeah, God or are you trying to... Yeah. And so that's... You're that's, trying to draw attention to yourself. Right, right. yeah, yeah. 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 So then the next section, I think, you know, we talked about how the Beatitudes kind of functions like a mission statement, sort of like Luke 4 um, with the citation of Isaiah 61. I, and I, I, I believe that. But I think this next section also kind of functions like a sort of submission statement almost for Matthew's narrative of Jesus. Um, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And that's Matthew 5, 17 and 18. And, and, and as an aside, I think we should we should note that here Jesus says, he speaks about the law and the prophets, and then in Matthew seven twelve, he also says, in reference to the golden rule, this is the law and the prophets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, there may be an inclusio there where, where this, this is sort of the core of Jesus' teaching mm-hmm. in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Now, we know that the fulfillment of Scripture is an important theme mm-hmm. in Matthew's Gospel. We've, we've already seen the prominence of formula quotations in, in yes. the early parts of Matthew's Gospel. The statement in Matthew 5.17 about fulfilling the law is more explicit, I would say, than anything in the rest of the Gospel tradition. Although Matthew 5.18, uh, talking about how not 
not one one letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law till all is accomplished does have a parallel in Luke 16 16 through 17 Jesus said there in Luke the law and the prophets were in effect until John and so you can see sort of a connection there and yet it's a very different saying the law and the prophets were in effect until John since then the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed and everyone is strongly urged to enter it that's a very different saying from what we have in Matthew 5:17 but then Luke kind of comes in line with Matthew, mm-hmm. but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to be dropped. And so again, you have this idea of the abiding authority of the Torah and how the law continues to, mm-hmm. to, to remain in effect. And very likely, when we're talking about the law here, we're thinking they're thinking about the Ten Commandments. Yes, yes. And so this idea of the abiding authority of the Torah as embodied in the Ten Commandments was important in the, in the gospel tradition. Mm-hmm. But only in Matthew's gospel does Jesus so explicitly declare his intention not to abolish the law and the prophets, but Mm -hmm. to fulfill them. Uh, Nevertheless, I think we can see in the New Testament as a whole that the importance of fulfilling God's will or purpose, especially in the scriptures, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, or the scripture, is a New Testament theme. There are are many places throughout the New Testament where this is... Um, this is brought out. The idea of fulfillment is 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 mentioned in New Testament writers, and I find it I, interesting. You know, we think of Paul as being sort of almost anti-law. Yeah, and we do. and and Paul, the the only places where Paul uses the words uses the word fulfill and, and with reference to Scripture is with reference to fulfilling the law. He uses it in, in, in Romans so, chapter 8 and in mm-hmm. Romans 13 and in Galatians 5. He talks about how love fulfills cool. the law. And, and uh, I find that interesting that for Paul, the fulfillment of Scripture is emphasized in, in the fulfillment of the law through love. Mm, yeah. Which is exactly what Jesus is saying, I think, in both I, I the agree. Sermon on the Plain and I the agree. Sermon on the Mount. I think, you know, I was thinking about this in my section. I'm thinking about it now. I think part of the challenge for it all is we tend to associate law not with love, mm-hmm. right? We tend we to do. associate. We don't associate law with mercy. Exactly. And we yet don't. it comes out of, straight out of God's mercy. Exactly. And, and I'm, not sure, I'm not sure why that is, if it's just experience with law or the feeling of law only comes into play when we're in trouble. Well, this was, a, I mean, this was a, an orientation in the early church from early days in the second century. There were people who had this, um, this con- idea that, that, that um, you know, they read the Old Testament almost with a lens that, that, that God was vengeful and right. angry well, and punishing. Right, the law is harsh, and you have and, to follow and, these right, things or you get right, in trouble. Right. And so love seems to be the opposite. It does. And, um, I was reminded the other day that, you know, when we get to the Ten Commandments, that the, the first part is, this will set you free. And when I set you free, yeah. and I think there's something I am really, the Lord your God who brought you uh, out of exactly. Egypt. Exactly. <laughs> this is freedom, and this yeah. is what you do. And so that's right. a really interesting, to, to change your mindset. So I think part of this is just kind of built into society that we struggle yeah. To see well, and love. And actually, I, I, I must say, I, I put some of the blame on Luther because Luther really stressed this law versus gospel thing. And I think Lutheranism, that, that still echoes in some, some fa- corners of Lutheranism to this day. Well, yeah, I can see that. I can see that's, that's, that's fair. But it, that's really not the Reformed tradition. Yeah. Well, that's not Calvin. But then right. again... Calvinism, it comes back again. Becomes mm-hmm. harsh. It becomes right, harsh, right? Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Um, 
so then I think the question of how Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets is one that deserves some attention. Uh, the language that Matthew uses can, I think, be confusing. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of letter will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teach, does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is Matthew five eighteen through 19. To me, this this kind of has that fairly absolute and rigid kind of sound right, 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 right. to it that we would identify maybe with Calvinism and, right. and but i would say you know if we look at jesus relationship with the law i would say in practice jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in several ways first jesus himself fulfilled the law by keeping the law he right. obeyed god he we, we we have evidence that he regularly attended the synagogue mm-hmm. uh, he kept the sabbath now he kept it in a different way than the religious leaders of his day thought he should he kept it by making it a day of ministry right but he kept the sabbath he endorsed the ten commandments and he summarized them in terms of love for God and love for neighbor by utilizing the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, mm-hmm. you shall love the Lord your God, and the Levitical Holiness Code from Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbors yourself. So, so in the most basic sense, I think we say Jesus fulfilled the law by keeping it in right. his own personal life. But again, I, I think we have to recall a bit of our discussion last week about how justice and righteousness are connected to salvation and the Beatitudes. We, we saw that in Beatitudes, Matthew weaves together some central themes from the Hebrew Bible related to salvation. And that includes righteousness, dikaiosune, most directly related to the Hebrew word tzedakah. Uh, but it also relates, I think, to the Hebrew word mishpat, which we normally translate as judgment or justice. But I think what we have to understand about this, both Zedekah and Mishpat in the Old Testament, is that righteousness and judgment, uh, righteousness slash justice is a characteristic of God, but it is also an action. It is the act of putting things right. And so, for example, if you look at Psalm 76, you know, we, we were familiar with the concept of the different kinds of justice. There's distributive justice. There's retributive justice. Mm-hmm. There's creative or restorative justice. Well, in Psalm 76, you see God's retributive justice against the kings of the earth who are powerful and who are oppressing mm-hmm. God's people results in in creative justice or restorative justice for the mm-hmm. poor of the earth. And that's a quote. And, you know, I'm, I'm still hearing resonances from the Beatitudes, right? right. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Of course, right. Um, and, and so, I, I, you know, I think it's important for us to see that righteousness, tzedakah, and justice, mishpat, are related to this restoration, this right. salvation that creates shalom. Now, the other central theme in the, in the Hebrew Bible that the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Play in the Mount emphasize is mercy, or Elias. And, and to me, again, the connection here is, is such that, that that Hebrew term chesed, which refers right. to covenant love or unfailing love, one of God's fundamental characteristics in the Hebrew Bible, is often translated in the Septuagint as Elias. And in fact, you go hmm, to the King James Version, you go to some of the early English versions, they will still translate hesed as it's, mercy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you've got, you've got righteousness, righteousness slash justice in a restorative or creative sense and mercy combined 
in the Beatitudes. And, and so in this sense, I think when Jesus can sum up what it means to practice the greater righteousness by saying in Matthew 7, 12, and everything do to others as you would have them do, for, do to you, for this is the law and the prophets, Jesus is confirming the abiding importance yeah. of the law for his disciples. So he, he fulfills the law by keeping it in his personal life. He fulfills the law by confirming the heart, the core right. of the teachings of the law and the prophets uh, in his own teachings to his disciples. But beyond that, as we will begin to see next week, although Jesus ignored the ritual commands regarding food right. uh, and contact with unclean persons, he upheld and even intensified the demand for moral obedience found in the law and the prophets. And so in this respect, Jesus defined the greater righteousness, which he demanded of those who would enter the kingdom of heaven in mm-hmm. Matthew 520. Uh, and he basically... Again, I think we have to, just as we talked about last week, we have to presuppose that the basis for this demand for righteousness was a relationship in covenant with God. That was the original structure of the Ten right, Commandments as right. well, right? Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, 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 the demands of the, of the Ten Commandments was based on the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. Right. You know, and, and so, so um, there was this covenant structure right. that was going on, a, a relationship that God had established by his own own grace and mercy with the people right. by his own loving choice of them um, and then that became the basis for the original Ten Commandments. Right. And so we see a similar, I think, structure going on here in that we have to presuppose that the demand for this greater righteousness in, in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is, is based on a relationship in covenant with right. God. And so then the devi- this definition of that righteousness in the golden rule outlines a, a really what we might call a, a new or a renewed obedience that's reoriented toward the command to love God and others. And the command to love others is expanded even to one's enemies, which was, Mm -hmm. that's, that's something kind of new and groundbreaking. Right. Right. And, and so this is part of this new and higher righteousness. And and part of it is that we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount that this new or renewed obedience comes not only from the heart, but also in Right. authentic practice mm-hmm. now that's not necessarily groundbreaking that's that's kind of straight from the prophets mm-hmm. you know the prophets speak about a new heart right that that god is going to give the people and he's going to cause them to want to do uh, god's will and want to obey him from mm-hmm. the heart mm-hmm. and this i mean it really goes back even to moses in deuteronomy moses calls the people to to love god and to right. obey him from the heart right so then the final summation in Matthew 5:48 you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You know this is part of the problem with the yeah. sermon on the mount is that we think well who can do that right? right? right. But it's not about Jesus Jesus isn't calling for some kind of sinless perfection or any kind, or even you know gaining righteousness by works or even some sort of unattainable ideal. But in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's, again, it's, it's the call to seek first God's kingdom yes. and God's righteousness, yes. which entails wholeheartedly aligning one's life with the kingdom of God that is already in the process of setting all things right. And, and the fact that you align your life with this kingdom of God that's already in the process of setting all things right thus produces this 
new obedience or renewed obedience defined by love that can extend even to one's enemies. Mm -hmm. So one can say then I think that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by focusing on what was essential, what he called the weightier matters. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he mentioned this in Matthew 23, 23, and it's literally justice and mercy and faith. But I would probably translate it here, restorative justice Mm -hmm. or saving justice and mercy and faithfulness in the in the sense mm. of you know you've aligned your life with God's purposes and right. so you are you are practicing this renewed obedience mm-hmm. so in this respect i would say that as the messiah jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by transcending them Yes, and so yes, his teaching I, then I becomes yeah. his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount then becomes the definitive revelation of the will of God. Right. Yeah. Yes. And it's not that it's not that Jesus is is replacing the law and the prophets. It's not that Jesus is invalidating the law and the prophets, or it's not that Jesus is supplanting the law and the prophets. But rather, he he takes it a step further, right. and 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 so he transcends in his teaching. He transcends the law and the prophets, mm-hmm. and thus fulfills them. Right. Right. And, uh, I mean, all this makes so much sense, too. And I do think, you know, as we're going through this, I think people do get sometimes stumble along mm-hmm. when some of these rules, like the Sabbath rule and the way it was done and the way the Pharisees interpreted it, well, he wasn't following the law. And I think I think what you've described here, then, is this kind of higher calling to the intent of the He's law. He's following the spirit of the law. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think one of the obstacles we have to the Sermon on the Mount is that a lot of us have ears that are trained by Paul. And, and, no, it's true. And maybe not trained by Paul, but trained by a misreading of Paul. Because yes. you can misread Paul to think that, you know, well, the law is bad and the law is the law is a, is is contrary to grace and salvation. But uh, Paul was dealing with a specific issue, and, and that was people who J- Jewish Christians who believed that Gentiles had to become Jewish first right. and thus submit to the law in order right. to first become a Christian. And that was a very specific problem that Paul was right, dealing with. Exactly. Um, Paul himself, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, he he speaks about love as the fulfillment of the law, just as robustly mm-hmm. as I mean, it's almost like he was taking it straight right. from Jesus right. in the Sermon on the Mount, right. So it's context, right? Yes, yeah, it yeah. is, it is. So then this, all of this sets the stage for the content that will follow, especially in Matthew 5, 21 through 7, 12. Jesus will spell out in more detail what the greater righteousness that is oriented toward love and mercy looks like in specific situations of life. Now, unfortunately, due to the calendar this year, we only have one more week on the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. But I've been trying to bring sort of a holistic perspective to this passage, and I'll do the same again next week. Wonderful. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and we are going to take a look at what the Reformers had to say about this passage. And Christy's done some work on that. So, Christy, uh, take it away for us. Yes, thank you. So, this is um, this is fun stuff. This is actually a passage Calvin will use a lot um, in, in the Institutes. So you can find this theme through the Institutes, several, several references to this passage, um, which is interesting. But as a whole, um, I think there's kind of three themes that I found. Um, and um, one was really that this message is for everybody. 
this is a priesthood of all believers mm-hmm. kind of, of message. And so who's the audience and the disciples or everybody? And in the Reformation era, again, there's this emphasis on the idea that this passage is for everybody. Um, everybody then was the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Everyone called to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, apparently there had been a kind of a, in the, in the medieval church, really an emphasis that these were for priests. Mm. These passages were for priests. And specifically, the light of the world was reserved for the bishop. Wow. So a very limiting sense of mm-hmm. this, this word. Now, that's not as a whole. Um, I, think, I think Calvin really, priesthood of all believers, but Calvin does tend to see this a little bit more towards clergy those that are mm. in these specific mm. roles. But ultimately, that kind of becomes everybody, too. So it's an interesting balance. Well, you know, uh, just purely from a, f- a standpoint of the form of the text, you know, it's interesting that in Matthew, Matthew introduces the Sermon on the Mount by saying that he taught his disciples. Right. Specifically, exactly. right? But then by the time you get to the end of it, it's pretty clear that there's a crowd there also. Right, <laughs> right. So I would say it's both and. Both and, right? <laughs> yeah. So Luther, and there's some pieces on Luther, claims that the call is on everyone to go above and beyond what would be kind, normal kindnesses towards loved ones. And for him, the work of the Christian is unique. That includes teaching correctly, stressing faith, showing how to preserve the faith and how to testify hmm. that we are Christians. That's interesting that he puts that spin to it to me. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> because I see I see the Sermon on the Mount being much more about how you treat other people. I'm, I resonate with that going above and beyond what would be the normal kindness to loved ones. I, mm-hmm. I agree with that mm-hmm. 100%. Mm-hmm. But if, um, the overall emphasis of Luther is this respect, faith, that this mm-hmm. is a response to faith. Um, and one of the challenges is how to tell works emanating from faith versus those that mimic faith but are not authentic. <laughs> and again, I find myself just kind of chuckling because, you know, of the setting of the Reformation, you know, you've got this sense of who's the, who are the, who is the pre-representing the true faith. Right, exactly. So Luther suggests that those that are not, that are not a result of faith are focused inward, mm while those of faith are outward. And we've already kind of alluded to that, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I thought it was a pretty profound statement, actually, but a a concept of doing work to earn faith is really a selfish kind of response, whereas actions that come out of faith are not. And Luther goes on to say that actions thus follow a true profession of faith, a profession of faith where, quote, the people learn that they are nothing and that Christ is everything. Well, and I would say, you know, I like that idea that, um, you know, if you're trying to sort of work it up so that you can be seen to be this sort of um, sort of perfect disciple, yeah, that's a selfish motivation. Mm-hmm. And whereas if it's really coming from genuine faith, right. it's just going to fl- it's just going to flow from your nature. And, and so you have to think about Luther, and you have to think about this. They're watching. In particular, the the practice of the, those who are sainted, and the practice mm. of this 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 cult of the saints, mm-hmm. and these people that become sainthood for doing these strange things that don't necessarily, and they're very public, and they're praised for them, and they don't necessarily have the intent that God met. And I really mm-hmm. think that's what He's getting yeah, at here. And that I makes think sense. when you see that around you, and you're just kind of 
disgusted. That person is a saint? Right. Um, <laughs> that, that really has nothing to do with love and kindness mm. and 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 um, treating human beings properly it it, it it is kind of a it is kind of I could confusing. get that. It yeah, make I can sense. see that. So yeah. I think that's a little bit what they're responding to. And sure. We forget. We kind of forget that. It's we easy don't to. see that mm-hmm. world. Or when you see, um, you know, when you see your your papacy so so wealthy and dripping mm-hmm. with diamonds and gold and and so elevated above really well, common and people. It became a it became a political position that was purchased mm-hmm. almost. You know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and what's interesting, and it's always important to keep in mind with Luther. And your reformers as a whole, the church as a whole recognized all their problems. Mm-hmm. They recognized this. Yeah, tr- there were reforming groups even within Absolutely. the monastic groups. Absolutely. There, were, there were reforming groups. It's a strange, because it had become such a political monster and because mm-hmm. it was controlled by wealthy secular fami- families, they saw the need, but how do you how do you affect change? I mean, we yeah. have the same thing today. You can yeah, see sure. the corruption, but you can't necessarily change those who are in charge because they have money and power and mm-hmm. big guns. You know? Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right, right. So you just complain from within, and and I, I think there were a lot of people, you know, maybe more quiet because it was always risky for your life that mm-hmm. recognized that this was this was heading towards well, I think you. of the Franciscans. Absolutely. There's yeah. a perfect group right there, yeah. right? That yeah. are recognizing the problems. Yeah. Um and I think even though the Dominicans were different than Franciscans, they also they recognized the teaching I agree. problems. I so agree. Yeah. um anyway, um so Luther kind of divides these the intent of the law into into, from the Ten Commandments, but really looks at that, what he calls the first table of the Decalogue, compared to the second table. And of course, the first table are those that would be those are related interactions between human beings and God, and the second with interaction between neighbors, which is something that many people have heard. Mm-hmm. But this was um, kind of an accepted division of the Ten Commandments, right. um, dating back to Augustine, um, but uh, anyway, it was in this is in this kind of context that that Luther is looking at um, what is the intent, and that is mm-hmm. the the, the he actually elevates the first ones above the, oh, the second ones. Okay, um, that the intent is first, and I think that makes honor s- God first. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense within the context too of some of these things that Jesus does not do that we just talked about. You know these mm-hmm. these these laws that where the intent has been lost and it's right. just become some kind of a ritual. Right. All right. So theme two, a relationship to the Old Testament. And what does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law? So another important emphasis of the reformers is the renewed importance of the law and the Ten Commandments specifically. And I wanted to uh, remind us, I think it's been a while, but at one point I had introduced to you that the medieval church had started to stress the seven deadly sins as a means to set Christians apart from the Jews. So instead of emphasizing the Ten Commandments as kind of your, your, your base guideline for life and for being a good Christian, they went to, to 
the seven deadly sins. And I find that I find that so strange because you know the Ten Commandments play a central role not only in the Hebrew Bible but also in the New Testament. And you, right. again, you've got even Paul saying the command to love fulfills all the commandments, and and they go to this the seven deadly sins, which comes from this sort of obscure passage mm-hmm. in Proverbs. <laughs> right, but a couple things have gone on. First of all, you have a church that's increasingly being uh, separated from scripture, Mm. right? You have very few people that can even read the darn thing. And even, and we've talked about the problem with the Vulgate before. And even, and even those who have the Latin, it's probably not very good Latin. They probably, the words have sense. I mean, perhaps even the priests, the the idea is that many of the priests really couldn't read latin they just were sort of had memorized they memorized some things and some of it was wrong yeah and even then they they the way that the medieval latin was a lot of the words had started to take on new meanings a lot of these you know all of our italian um languages or latin languages had had kind of if you will devolved from the latin Mm -hmm. so these uh, people that read medieval latin it's it's a weird thing. It's mm. not classical at all, and you have to be familiar with whatever vernaculars at the time in order mm. to be able yeah. to make your way through it. And so these folks don't have a really good grasp. There's a few scholars out there, but over. So you're getting this weird church that's kind of spinning off of of even what it not would grounded have, in scripture exactly yeah. Yeah. of what we would have even had at the towards the end of the Roman Empire. Right? You've yeah. got you've got kind of a mess. So the seven deadly sins, and part of the reason too they're doing it is 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 for um, uh, political and social reasons, and that we start to see you know we have we have if you will the early Middle Ages once long ago that was known as the Dark Ages, which is not the best terminology, but we have an age where this church, this falling apart of the classical tradition and right. the lack of learning is going on in Latin. We see that's where we see all these languages appear. Um, and so the church is just kind of holding on and kind of just calling the shots to, to, to keep control. Um, well, then by the time you hit the high Middle Ages, you get what's called an age of persecution. And it's during this age of persecution that the church starts to kind of define its own dogma picking up on many of the things they've developed during this early period, Mm -hmm. they become kind of fermented into what it it means to be the church, the medieval Mm -hmm. church anyway. And part of it also then is to define themselves against other groups. And you start to see the rise of the persecuting society. It comes in with the Crusades. It comes in with the Reconquista of Spain. And so you get Christians that are actively defining who they are against someone else. So the Ten Commandments are associated with Judaism. Wow. Therefore, this emphasis on the seven deadly sins wow. to add this kind of division between Christianity and Judaism. That's amazing. That's amazing. And not too long thereafter then, as this process starts, um, if you know, thinking about your history, um, Jews and Muslims will be kicked out right. of Europe. Right. right. That's where the ghettoization starts in some places. Like if you go to Prague, they're not actually kicked mm-hmm. out, but they're put into the, the right. ghettos. Right. You'll start to see um, uh, the free cities. You'll see Jews in the free cities. You'll see them in Eastern Europe, but they're, they're, but they're kicked out of Western Europe. So there's a handful of pockets, which then many of us, then when we pick up in World War II, wonder, well, why were there Jews in these places or why? And that's, right. that's how this is, that's how this works out. I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, it's fascinating to me that, that, you know, 
the the transition in the church from you know this sort of discipleship model to more of a political hierarchical power model you know and the drift away from being grounded in scripture um, enables <laughs> the leaders of the church to to say to to associate the 10 commandments with the jewish people as something that was negative and something i guess to be avoided as a christian it's just it boggles my mind right. as a new testament person because right. it's just so you know the idea of of jesus command to love your neighbor as the fulfillment of all the commands is so thoroughly woven into the new testament i agree i agree i ju- i think it was i think it was really more on a simpler level mm-hmm. they wanted yeah. simple and that people makes sense to have, you know, if any guidelines, and so let's divide this so they can follow it. Make it a clear division. Make it a clear division, yeah. and yeah. and. Um, <sighs> hmm, let's see. Pick pick simplistic compl- concepts to divide people so that you can control them. Wow, what a strategy! But, oh, <laughs> it, well, exactly, it, exactly. It's very. I mean, it's the same time the church took over. All, you know, first of all, they get the seven sacraments. Then mm-hmm. you then you get controls over over emergence of canon law and more control over people. This is when marriage, and we'll talk about that next week, um, becomes something the church has anything to care about. They didn't care before. Yeah. There was no yeah. control over marriage at all, where, no, it needs to be recorded down, and we need to keep track of marriage. And so there's a all of this happens during the high mm. Middle Ages. It's a, mm. it's a fascinating time. Also, this is when you start getting your huge cathedrals, the Romanesque first and then the Gothic. Those are all medieval things and why build something that big i mean you think it's not a power play to build the biggest steeple show to show people we are here and we are powerful exactly exactly so there's there's a lot of things that go on of course and we benefit from them today as you know these beautiful landmarks but yeah so um back to as a whole um the mainline reformers have this Ten Commandments structure, but just like the early church, um, there were those who wanted to do away with the Old Testament altogether, even mm-hmm. in the Reformation, right, right? Right. And so Calvin addresses this in the Institutes. Um, he says that the law is in place until all is in until all, if you will, is in place till all is completed. That Jesus' appearance is to renew it and fix it, the law. And as Calvin notes, following the law will set us, quote, for every good work. Um, but mainline reformers, the magisterial reformers, the mainline ones, are going to make a big deal about the law. So as opposed to the medieval church, now you've got this emphasis on the law because well, you have this emphasis on Scripture. It, but it makes, and it makes so much sense now that, that the reformers would return to placing such an emphasis on the Ten Commandments because it's biblical. It's biblical. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, particularly Calvin. Yeah. Even more than Luther, although all of them yeah. are now interested in and they're all reading Hebrew for the first time, yeah, right? Yeah. They're all seeing these patterns um, in the church. They're all seeing we've together that has been kind of lost. Um, according to Heinrich Bullinger, um, quote, the, 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 the Ten Commandments are the most excellent and perfect will of God, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. in, I think, um, you know, as I was processing this, I think we tend to assume that the Ten Commandments are important, 
But it, this is because of what happened during yep, the Reformation. This right. is because of the yep. Reformers. And so I think it's one of those places where I, I just want to continue to emphasize why Reformation in our discussion, because so much of what we assume mm-hmm. about the right. church Began developed there. during that yep. time. So we need that whole history to... Well, and I think of something as simple as a catechism. I mean, that's where the structure of the catechism was established, you know, in in the Catholic Church, you know, it was about it was about it was based on the Apostles' Creed, and I I I can only presume, you know, what other elements of canon law that they wanted to stress, right. but um, it, it's it's in the Reformed, it's in the it's in the context of the Reformation that you start with the Apostles' Creed, you move to the Ten Commandments, you conclude mm-hmm. with the Lord's Prayer. Right. That pattern of catechism was shaped. Right. By right. Luther and Calvin and 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 the the magisterial reformers. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and and in line with this, you know, um, I was looking and I, I I didn't spend a lot of time, but looking for images of medieval churches with Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. I didn't really find much at all. Mm-hmm. I did find a medieval church that had been in a Reformation area, and so. They removed the images, but they put mm. up the Ten Commandments of Moses. <laughs> so, and it's really fun. This was an English church, so it was in English, but it was yeah. just that reminder of this shift of, and, and that's how we would learn it. And interesting that they're written out with this assumption that they have teaching people to read in mm-hmm. their vernaculars so that they can read those Ten Commandments. Right. Because what's the purpose of having it up there if right. you can't read them? Right. 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 So, really interesting stuff. Yeah. So, what I like about the Reformation interpre- interpretation of the law is that it is a means to live, quote, well and happily. Um, and I think it's an important piece because we often relate to law as harsh and, mm-hmm. and rigorous. And I think here it is placed within the context of the New Testament passage as a true meaning of the law in living in harmony and peace with God and others. Yeah. I mean, it's the rightness, the righteousness that makes for mm-hmm. peace or shalom, exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, so this moves from the Reformation being a religious doctrine to being the backbone of the godly city. <laughs> I think, oh, geez, they, 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 mm-hmm. they had, they were on the right track. Why did yeah. they have to go there? <laughs> well, and isn't that an interesting pattern yeah. that you get this kind of freedom, and then it turns into some kind of dogma, yeah. and you see the pattern over Control. and over. I mean, I think it's a reminder that God's work is never done. I mean, yeah. it's always kind of cyclical. Yeah. So again, no division of church and state. Um, and therefore, these Ten Commandments become part of the legal code. And instead of canon law versus Roman law, you get this one civic law whose fundamental value system starts with the Ten Commandments. Um, and what is interesting is as the Reformation progresses, the idea of happy is replaced almost by a draconian sense of living and with this late, later part of the Sermon on the Mount that deals with inner conformity. That's, that's amazing to me, you know, conformity. Who's going to be the conformity police? Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. And so, you know, that, that, that allows you to do things, to, be, to ask questions of, mm-hmm. well, but if, are they guilty in their heart? They're still guilty. And mm-hmm. we actually start to see... Um, various types of attacks on people because of this inner, well, you know, the witch, I mean, the witch hunts. Even in the of history this. of this church, back in the 70s, the pastor still made annual visits to every member to assess whether or not they were fit to receive communion. Oh, jeez. <laughs> like, oh, like, <laughs> likewise, 
I had no idea. <laughs> true. True story. I still keep... Oh. Likewise, behavior that counters the law is always viewed as inward and morally lax. Mm. Um, and this is the framework that Calvin, Calvinism comes from mm -hmm. and loses the sense of joy sure. that Luther and Bullinger pull out. Well, I mean, yeah, you, 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 you know, if the goal is conformity and, 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 you know, the, I mean, freedom is perceived as laxness or laxity, you know, <laughs> Where's the joy in that kind of lifestyle? Right, right. And we see this in Calvin, right? It's a bit of a double standard, in my opinion. For Calvin, clearly there's an expectation that behavior will respond to this kind of inner, inner faith, inner peace. So likewise, behavior that runs counter to godliness would be a way to distinguish the elect mm. from the reprobate. You have to be able to figure out who's who, exactly. right? So who's can, in and who's out. Exactly. <laughs> so while forgiveness is part of the equation, there's still an expectation mm. of behavior. And so in, in institutes, for example, um, uh, Calvin attacks the behavior of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, in many ways, and this is a whole section, by the sure, way. Sure, In many ways, the clergy, the priests were behaving badly sure. and in excess Recognized I mean, yeah, reforming church. reforming movements within the Roman Catholic Church yeah. would, would have said the same thing. Yeah, right? but in Institute, Calvin really attacks this as evidence of laxness mm. of the church. And he says, quote, there is no order of men more notorious in excess, effeminacy, voluptuousness, in short, in all sorts of lusts. <laughs> I wish Calvin would really, you know, not mince words and would tell us what he really thinks. <laughs> These people... and. You know, they're supposed to be pillars of the church, and in Calvin's world, they're behaving badly. Yeah. And while his criticism is fair this time, we know yes. uh, these are these are not really faithful people. No. I mean, these people are... are, are they have all kinds of motivations of for what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, their they're power family, their son mm -hmm. was placed there because mm -hmm. he could have power there and mm -hmm. they could care less about it. But anyway, it's a reminder of the balance between belief and practice. Um, not much not much emphasis on righteousness and mercy going no, on. No, <laughs> no. But, you know, you see some of this stuff then as we move into the Synod of Dort and we move into kind of Calvinism mm -hmm. that becomes so rigid and, you know, the pastor going and checking to see if people are fit <laughs> to take communion, right? Mm. This it. It's the wrong emphasis. Mm -hmm. That's um, right. I agree. So, and then finally, um, this was an interesting piece, and it's not going to be obvious but to us, but the, the, there's an emphasis from the reformers of the power of the church is in Scripture. And I found this surprising, but it's Calvin, obviously, because he's so insistent on the importance of Scripture. But Calvin takes the idea that the apostles are the light of the world and the salt of the earth to mean that it is their job to spread the word of Christ, which is an ultimately um, bonded in God's word. Mm. And while he does not expand on this within the entirety of the verses, I do think it is interesting that the commentaries on salt and light are followed by the section on the law. The law is the fundamental guidepost that the apostles would, in following Jesus, teach and act, mm. and that would be in response to Scripture. Wow, that's an interesting point of view. Yeah, I'm not sure I can can follow him on that entirely. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of, um, I thought that was an interesting point. And ultimately, ultimately, of course, there's another attack on the Roman Catholic Church mm. um, that added on to Scripture. They, they made, 
they constructed the faith sure. beyond what Scripture had. Sure. And as we know, um, that was one of the ma- major emphases of the Roman Catholic Church was to give apostles a voice to embellish. Well, and and more than that, even church fathers and even papal decrees and yep. you know anything yep. that was an official declaration of the church was was part of the tradition that that was. <laughs> at least equal to, but in practice, greater, greater in authority. Right. Greater right. than, greater than scripture in authority. Yeah. Right. 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 So that's what I have today. But, um, yeah, I found it a really rich passage to, for the reformers. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Christy. Hi, everyone. We're back. And uh, as we were processing this, we, I think really the, the interesting core of this is this relationship between law as being something that frees us, is, is, is making us happy, versus this kind of law that is, is harsh and restrictive. And um, I think that's not only a, a, I think that's a problem between in individuals as we see this. I think part of that's part of our, our society that's kind of brought that concept of law to us. And I think we still see it in the church today, actually, instead of what I would hope would be this freeing sense. I think through the broader church, we still see it. Oh, yeah. I mean, where you, when you still have a pastor who's visiting you every every year to, to, to determine whether or not you can receive communion in the coming year, that's, that's right. pretty restrictive, right? That's right. pretty uh, rigid. Um, but, but I think it even go, I mean, and, and the tradition, as I mentioned before, it started in the second century that there was the, there were these Christian leaders who viewed the God of the Bible, of the, of the Hebrew Bible as being angry and vengeful and punishing. And I mean, you know, I, I mentioned Psalm 76, uh, as an example of justice being, uh, both retributive and restorative. And, and, you know, if you read Psalm 76, it's kind of a scary psalm because it talks about how God is going to overthrow the, the kings of the earth and their armies and destroy all the weapons of war. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it depends on your perspective because if you're the, if you're, if you're, you know, somebody with with privilege and somebody who's who who is being protected by these armies then then that can be scary if you're somebody who's being oppressed by the army that's then that's a freeing thing and and as i mentioned in my segment the whole point of this retributive justice this punitive justice against the kings of the earth who are powerful and who are oppressing you know the godly is that it is going to bring salvation to the poor of the mm-hmm. earth, right? And, right. And and I, so I think you know in our day, you know, there are people who are beginning to recapture this sense that you know justice and judgment. Yeah, even the translation in the English Bible versions I think can that's be part of the very problem, misleading, right? right? Yeah. Because mishpat is oftentimes translated as judgment, right? And we think of judgment as being negative, right? And and, and when you really dig into the content of the words like tzedakah, righteousness, mm-hmm. and mishpat, justice, you see that oftentimes, you know, tzedakah or mishpat can appear in the plural as 
acts of righteousness or mm-hmm. acts of justice. Right. And the context in the context, it's salvation, saving acts, restoring right. acts. It's restoring. Right, right. So it's acts of saving justice, acts of saving of righteousness. More beautiful images. Yeah. I was even thinking of the word sin. I mean, yeah. you know, my non-Christian friends in particular just think, oh, how I sin. <laughs> and and I, I've been known to do, do some prayers where i don't use sin and mm-hmm. i'll use some other things like mistakes and oh. th- things that are softer to the ear i do that and i myself. think it's really helpful for folks that the even the harshness of the word they can't they can't deal with but everyone says well yeah but i make mistakes mm-hmm. and then that helps i think sometimes yeah. but i th- some of it i think righteousness alone i think that I word can be viewed oh well righteousness you're, you holier think you're than better now. than everybody yep. else and so it is interesting how language has sh- continues to shift mm-hmm. um and so I, you don't want to give up on the good words but mm-hmm. you do i think want to sometimes put in things that for some years particularly seekers that they can relate to. Yeah. Well, and it's, again, it's one of the reasons why I get excited about the Beatitudes and the context behind them. And, I, you know, because I do believe, you know, when it comes to the, to the core of Jesus' teaching, in, in some respects, there's nothing that Jesus says that you can't find in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, if the heart right. of Jesus' oh, teaching absolutely. is love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Right. That is that is the core of the Hebrew Bible, but you know I think where Jesus um, extends it is you know he he really pushes people with some concrete examples about what it means to love from the heart and right. to and to obey God from the heart right. with the way you live, and he also really pushes people in terms of. What does mercy in action look like? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, if you're really going to be oriented on round mercy, which is again, that's that's. I mean, if if Hesed, God's covenant love, is 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 translated by the by the Greek word Elias in the Septuagint, mm-hmm. that provides the thought, sort of the 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 the. The thought world in which the New Testament is working. Mm-hmm. So the mercy that the, that the New Testament is 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 thinking about is this unfailing love of God. It begins in that. And so, I, as I've said it many times, those of us who have experienced that unfailing love truly are going to, you know, extend that same mercy, that same love, that same acceptance to others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and um, again, it, it becomes a freeing concept because right. we, we no longer have to say, well, okay, who's in, who's out? Am I am right. I above you? Are you above me? You know, right. we don't have to rank each other based on you know how many of the deadly sins am I guilty of versus you. It's just, it's all grace. It's all mercy. Right, it's, right. it's, and it's, it's all about what God is doing to restore and set things right. And yet, there's still within the church, even a church that practices this, this perception of something else. I know. And how many young people do I have? Wonderful oh, confirmation know. kids. And then they quit coming to church. And how many have said, those people are so good. I make all these bad decisions mm-hmm. to do. I'm, I'm, I'm really not worthy of being in church. I, I and, and there's such a fear of being judged mm-hmm. for who they are that they won't even come back. And I didn't teach it to them. 
So right. where is it coming from? Is that just society's treatment of the church outside, or is that just them looking at adults that they liked or they respect, and then they think, I'm not respectable? I don't live up to that standard. Is it because, yeah. you know, and as a parent, right, you're always trying to help your children make good choices. Mm-hmm. So you're you're suggesting, hmm, you know, you, you practice sex before marriage, you put yourself at risk for having you know, children out of wedlock, and, and so you encourage them to not do this. Well, then, you know, your young people go out and they do have sex before marriage, and then they, they feel, feel like, like you're going to be judged, they right? They failed, failed or, or short, drugs yeah. or anything else. And it is an interesting space because they look at churches, the adults, the adults who taught me all this stuff, I made all these mistakes, therefore I'm not welcome. And I... And they don't know the mistakes that those right. adults made when they were their age. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so somewhere this dialogue needs to mm-hmm. re-engage them to say, you know, many, many people have made these mistakes and they've made other mistakes. Well, and, and I think I think especially, you know, again, this is where that image of God is, as angry and vengeful and punishing, mm-hmm. you know, we re-react to that because of our own sense of guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I've encountered people like that, you know, people who actually resented the, the language of sin used in the confession of sins. Right. And, you know, I label it as confession of sins, and we all know what we're doing. We're confessing where we fall short. But I've been doing the same thing lately. I've been yeah. using kind of soft language more evoke more language that people can connect with because i think people almost it's almost like a oh i've sinned you know it just it's a word that almost has lost its meaning with people because it's uh, one at once it's it's so broad as to as to not really be specific but at, at the same time it's so associated with this orientation of guilt and shame that it it people are just like I think numb to it. It's like they just yeah. can't handle yeah. it. And so I, in my confession, you know, unison confession of sin, I, I use more specific concepts related to the scriptures for the day. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I, 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 you know, I hope that resonates with people a little I, bit more. I think it you know, does. Just to I recognize, think it does too. Yeah. I, I fall short in this area right. and I need to hear from the word of the Lord. That's going right. to hopefully help me um, uh, live into right. the, the, the restorative righteousness that God has exercised in my life and, right. and the mercy that he's shown me that I want to show others. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I think our assurance of forgiveness is yes. just huge. And yet yes. I don't know that people always hear it. Yeah. And, 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 and this is where, um, this is where, um, my senior pastor is great because he kind of does this, he kind of stops and steps out of the liturgy and says, did you hear that? Mm. This is the best news ever mm. because that's good. All, and it's wonderful. And it, it really does kind of slap you in the face and say, Oh yeah. And not all churches do assurance mm-hmm. uh, of forgiveness. And that's unfortunate. Well, the trend now is just to get rid of the whole confession. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sad too, because when you come and you have that, that heavy heart. I mean, sometimes what's what drags people to church anyway, mm-hmm. and to know that you are loved um, by God, that you are forgiven, um, and to just lay out and be honest about who you are in front of God, that's so important. It can be freeing. Yeah, it, it can, can be, be really freeing, but I think it's either become, we've just become uh, complacent, or, or that's the wrong word, we've become um, uh, kind of... Uh, 
passive about it. We don't well, really we get think into about a routine. Yeah. We get into a routine because because most of our churches have sort of a flow of worship mm-hmm. that becomes um, um, almost monotonous, and yeah. and people kind of tune out. They tune out, and they don't realize. And they don't hear this amazing message of you know God is working to set right everything, and He's working to set your life right, mm-hmm. and this is not not a negative judgment against you. Right. This is a matter of God working to restore you to life right. and to right. blessedness and to joy and to peace and, and and also to 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 sort of, you know, by 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 uh, infecting you with right. his with his unfailing love and his mercy that is that right. is free and without condition um, so that you will then go and infect other people's by other people by treating them right. in, with that kind exactly. of generosity it's as awesome. well. It's awesome. Yeah. Now, I do think we are, you know, because still the Roman Catholic Church is so prevalent, mm-hmm. people still hear that sense that there is not assurance of salvation mm-hmm. and there mm-hmm. is a you have to confess all of your sins right. to the priest you in order to, to be, be in a state of grace and yeah. that's based on what you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's really the big issue there and people still True. hear it that way uh, yeah. even in, in in people who are lifelong presbyterians in my church i, I still i think struggle and wrestle with catholic issue concepts Absolutely. that they have been enca- they've encountered from from the society at we large we encounter it from the society at large of course mm-hmm. the confessional is mm-hmm. picked up by pop culture so often um, and people just have this impression of it in fact i bet there's presbyterians despite having a this prayer of confession every Sunday that don't actually know that we have it. It's yeah. like they're just completely yeah. blind to yeah. the liturgy. That's true. As I said, that's where that's where the, my senior pastors kind of stepping out of the liturgy mm-hmm. is really that's effective. That's good. Because it, you kind of I may of wake have to up. do that myself. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really really good. Anyway, um, but uh, I think I think if you could get people to think about this and you can start to get people to reconceptualize what what it means to walk in the light if you will absolutely absolutely <laughs> thanks christy thanks that's our podcast for today if you heard something that was helpful to you please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.